It's the Armored Observer Podcast, the free edition, the weekly edition, the podcast for the people. Justin Ferguson here in Auburn, Alabama, as always. Also in Auburn, Alabama, checking in our good friend, Dan Peck. What's up, Dan? Hello, Justin, and hello to all, including the Peck Pack. Painter Sharpless, as always, on the ones and twos from Parts Unknown. How are we doing, Painter? Hello, doing well. And folks, he's back, returning champion, one of our all-time favorite guests here on the program, longtime friend of The Observer, one of the original Inner Circle members, uh, college football podcasting and blogging royalty, Alex Kirshner of Split Zone Duo, Slate, other fine places. How are we doing, Alex? Doing wonderful. It's great after you know the better part of a year of just observing The Observer to once again be being observed within the observer for a change. Absolutely. So we brought Alex on. It's, it's, you know, we've been talking Dan and, and painter. We've been talking like, this has been such a busy off season for Auburn. And we've constantly had stuff to talk about and a lot of new topics and a lot of fresh news last few days, not as much. So we're happy to have Alex on. Cause we're going to talk, we'll talk some Auburn. We'll also talk some kind of big picture stuff with the sec and with college football and, uh, if you don't know Alex, listen to Split Zone Duo, read his stuff. Um, we'll, we'll do a lot of plugs at the end, but uh, Alex is one of the very best at all things college football. And I kind of wanted to bat lead off here. We were talking about what we wanted to discuss on the show. And I think the big topic this offseason for Auburn, Alex, has been the transfer portal and the fact that Hugh Freeze has come in and said, hey, we're going to revamp this roster. Um, it's one of the biggest transfer classes in the country. It's not quite the Colorado level, and I'm sure we'll talk about Colorado in, in that. But I did want to, like, as we get deeper and deeper uh, into this portal era, what do you think about teams that drastically revamp their rosters in a short amount of time? And kind of like, what is there a ceiling? Like, how successful do you think this can kind of be on the field? Because I think it's all different objectives, but all, Auburn and Colorado are very interesting in the fact that it's year one and they they just went, you know, full on, you know, reset. Colorado obviously bigger than Auburn, but you know, you've you've seen you've seen uh portal heavy teams in the past and and it's going to only continue to grow from here. What do you think about these teams that are hitting the hard reset buttons in year one like an Auburn uh, under freeze this season? I think if you're going to do it, the time to do it is right when the coach gets there and that's not just a vibes thing, that's an NCAA rules thing over the last couple of years. And and I think I I should say that I think heading into 2022 was the first year of this of this rule being widely used. That if you get a new head coach and it's the first season on the job, you can remove a scholarship player from your roster as long as you keep them on scholarship. So they don't count toward your 85. So you're able to, as long as you don't mind paying scholarships for players who aren't on scholarship anymore to turn over your roster incredibly quickly in a way that really has no scholarship cap consequences. Because remember that Mm -hmm. the 25 man a year initial counter situation is a thing of the past now too. So if you're going to do it, uh, you do it in the first few months that, that a new coach is there. Colorado has definitely been the most exaggerated example of a school doing that, but USC did it to great effect last year. Is it a little bit gross? No, because it's more than a little bit gross. It's extra, like runoffs in college football and basically telling scholarship players that they're not wanted is gross. And it's 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 an unfortunate underbelly of the business that 
we're all looking at here. But it's an undeniably low consequence way to retool if you're in a situation like Hugh Freeze is in at Auburn right now. So I understand why coaches are taking advantage of it. And the thing with Auburn is, is that they had so much attrition, just straight up like we're not here anymore <laughs> uh, the, the last few classes, that they had room where they haven't really had to make tough calls on, on scholarships. as well. I mean, Colorado, I'm looking at the list from 247 right now. Auburn's got 21 transfers in this class. Colorado's got 51. Um, but what do you think about teams like, you know, I'm looking at this number five and, and a team that Auburn's going to play. And obviously there's going to be storylines aplenty with this team whenever they're mentioned, especially in relation to Auburn. Now, Ole Miss had 25 in this year. Lane Kiffin's been there for a few years. Like this is, this is something, it's not like he's brand new to the, to the scene and continuing to get, I mean, they got another quarterback this weekend somehow from a kid that's reclassifying two years and doing like black magic homeschool stuff. I don't know. I don't know how in the world that guy uh, is doing what he's doing, but what do you think about these teams that, you know, are, are kind of getting a rep for like past that first year? Oh yeah. The portal's a thing we're going to do. And this is good. This is what, what we're going to be like. Do you see that as something that is that teams are going to try? Like if you're an old miss and you're probably not going to recruit at an elite level, roll the dice on that over and over again. Do you think we're going to start to see more teams try to follow that Lane Kiffin model? I do. And that sort of comes back to the the other change that we talked about a minute ago with the 25-man-a-year initial counter limit being dropped. That used to be a pretty big deterrent against portaling to save your job, so to speak, because if you load up year after year on transfers – Suddenly, they're all going to be out of the program, and you are not going to have enough freshmen and sophomores in because you couldn't use your 25 scholarship slots a year to get players into your program and, and develop them because you were going for quick fixes. You were going for the band-aids. And this has gotten a lot of coaches in trouble. This got this is you know what failed Matt Wells, most notably at, at Texas Tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what big, big failed Jake Spavital at Texas State. And a lot of coaches have just done very poorly in this regard. But if you are a guy like Lane Kiffin or honestly a guy like Hugh Freeze and and you have a pretty good reputation for plug-and-play offense and being able to score a lot of points with all manner of quarterback and lineman and receiver and running back, then it's hard not to do it, right? Especially now that you're not facing an annual counter limit on players you can bring in. So if your 85-man math looks like you got a bunch of room to – bring in a few transfers who'll be gone in a year or two. You can do that with with less risk. Um, not no risk because you're still not developing players behind them, but uh, maybe developing players behind them is is a big risk in and of itself because of how easy it is just to leave now. And, and you know, a program can develop you and you can just leave, which I think is fine, to be clear. You know, we're a very pro portal here. Uh, so I understand. Again, like I, I get why, why Elaine Kiffin would do it. I would get why Hugh Freeze, even a year or two from now, would do it. It just seems like it's the world that we live in going forward. What What do you think the downsides are to, especially teams in the best conferences, trying to build through the portal instead of trying to win high school recruiting battles against the best teams in their league? Uh, downsides are depth. There's less reason for players to stick around, and they're probably not going to stick around for the long haul, if you jump them in line with portal players. And I think that's just college football's version of something that also exists in NFL locker rooms, which is that 
if you have good players coming up and you don't offer them second contracts after they've had three or four good years, eventually that sort of becomes a poisonous thing in a locker room and it makes it harder to retain your own guys. I think it's naive to think that that doesn't happen on a significant level in college football and that there's not some cost to retaining the players that you've been developing. If you are constantly portaling guys in that are going in front of them on the depth chart. Uh, And also it's a continuity business to some extent. And if a player is in your system for two or three years, and then you put him on the field, he might have a better idea how to play within whatever system it is you have than someone who comes in and has just spring ball or just a fall camp in an off season to figure it out. Now that could be moot depending on, you know, if you're firing coordinators at uh, or changing offensive coordinators at like a Brian Harson like rate, <laughs> the last couple of years at Auburn, maybe that doesn't matter as much because you have a new system every five minutes. But if you are trying to build continuity over over years and years and years, like if you were a a Utah, for instance, which is you know just or an Iowa, which will never fire their offensive coordinator, uh, obviously, <laughs> then it would come at that kind of cost. Yeah, I wondered if you were going to throw out there that there's also probably a ceiling to building your team that way because the very best players, at least at mm-hmm. the moment seems like the very best players at the highest priority positions aren't doing a lot of portaling. You know, if you think about the best offensive linemen, the best tackles, the best pieces on the defensive line, the very best corners, the very best receivers, right? We're not seeing a lot of those guys switch teams yet. And so I wonder if if you're going to build through the portal, maybe you close yourself off to players like that unless you can find some combination of the portal and winning your share of battles for the top players in high school. Yeah. It's obvious that you can hit big home runs in the portal. And it's, you know, it was obvious that you could get good transfers before the portal existed. I know I'm on an Auburn podcast right now, and I can think of one or two off the top of my head who worked out pretty well for Auburn in the last uh, 10 or 13 years, but it is a business now. Uh, It's always been a business, but, but it's a more regimented business. And I think everyone who goes into the portal is in the portal for one of a couple reasons. One of them is it didn't work out for them at the last place. And whether that was because they weren't good enough or something else, it, not all risk goes away when you go to a new place. So I think that is a risk. Uh, and at the same time, you know, on the other hand, if you are really good and everyone knows that you're really good, uh, then I hope your NIL collective is up to snuff because Mm-hmm. budgets are real and the sport now has something a little bit more resembling a free market and so you know the affordable home run transfer is tricky it's it's not how most of these things work out yeah it's hard to like money ball the the portal <laughs> like you like it's absolutely it's, yeah it seems to be just kind of big spenders or you know or not like <laughs> that that's that is the that is the way things are trending for for sure Switching gears a little bit, the the other big topic we've talked about a lot recently, in addition to the portal and and all that with with Auburn is is SEC scheduling. Um, I I know I know you have takes, I know you have opinions on on, on this issue. Uh, the SEC staying at at eight for another year, at least a bridge year. Um, there's talk about it possibly stretching to another year and even in and out and all that. There's a push for nine. There's debate about what you would do if you go to nine there are debate about who you know who plays who when and rivals and nick saban and 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 all that all that good stuff what do you think about the sec's position and kind of the direction they decided to go in at least in the short term 
uh, when they bring Texas and Oklahoma into the league next year? Inevitably, I think the SEC is going to go to a nine-game schedule. Mm-hmm. It just strikes me as impossible that that's not eventually going to happen. And I think it would be great if the guy in charge of the conference were able to build enough consensus to make that happen in the next now, in the next year. I mean, Greg Sankey gets more stories written about him, about what a ruthless, impressive organizer and leader he is than any other administrator in the history of college sports. So I do think it's a little underwhelming that he couldn't figure this one out over. It wasn't like one weekend of meetings, right? Or one week of meetings. Like this has been on his mind since probably approximately July of 2021 when Texas and Oklahoma came aboard. I am sensitive to the the point that it is harder to do this in the SEC than it is in any other conference because so many teams in the SEC have multiple games that demand protection just from a rivalry, from a fan engagement his, historical standpoint, and those don't always wind up being fair. Like you know, parody wise, I I understand Nick Saban's beef, but I mean, cry about it. I mean, that's I can that's safe to say on an Auburn podcast. Like, yeah. Don't don't be scared to compete. And and no, like Vanderbilt is not going to get the same three games in terms of average difficulty that Alabama's going to get. And uh, I think a lot of people have kind of failed their constituents here in different respects that this is going to go on for at least another year with a lot of SEC, SEC teams not being lined up to play each other. Who should be? What do you think about the angle that was at least mentioned a little bit uh, during spring meetings where it was like, hey, if we're going to give you nine SEC games a year, ESPN. Uh, how about how about giving us a little bit more money? Is that even possible? Like I, I, I am so unplugged from that side of college sports, and I know on Split Zone, you guys uh, are, are a little bit more in that in that zone. Is that even something that's possible, or, or does ESPN just look at you and say, "Hey, look, we just fired a bunch of people, had to lay off, had had a ton of layoffs. Uh, we gave you the contract, you signed it. Sorry, like y- y'all have to figure this out yourselves." Like what? Like what? What about that angle? Because that that was what I kept hearing out of Destin is is like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe they're holding out and trying to play hardball with with Disney a little bit. So the SEC adds Texas and Oklahoma the same summer that it strikes up a new TV deal with ESPN. And actually, you guys will probably be better rememberers than me about which announcement came first. But let's assume that the SEC had some idea of where it was going when it added Oklahoma and Texas, and also was striking up this new deal with ESPN, uh, with Disney. Let's assume that those weren't two complete coincidences that nobody had any idea about. And I think we know that it wasn't a big coincidence for Fox and the Big Ten when Mm -hmm. USC and UCLA came aboard a couple of years, or excuse me, uh, a couple of weeks apart. Let's assume that those aren't all coincidences. The contracts that these conferences sign with their television partners are not public, but I would be pretty surprised if there isn't something in that paperwork to the effect of what happens if we, A, add more teams, or B, make structural changes that would give you more games to put on TV, better games to put on TV. Like That would seem kind of negligent on the part of the conference commissioners, for instance, if that language weren't there. And you know, Greg Sankey doesn't strike me as, as a not smart guy as an incompetent guy. So I would think, right? Like I would think that there's some flexibility in there, but obviously it takes two parties to strike up a fresh agreement. What is your general consensus on Texas and Oklahoma joining the league and like 
just what that's going to mean moving forward, what that's going to look like and play. Cause I, I thought it was odd at first. And then I saw, I just keep thinking like, you know, A&M more, much more than Missouri A&M just fit into the culture of the sec just seamlessly. They're insane. They spend a lot of money. They have big stadiums and all that Missouri, not as much Texas and Oklahoma. It just, I don't know. I think, I think in my opinion, A and M has just been around long enough and it's felt normal long enough that I've just been like this go around. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's bring them in. Let's do it. It should be fun. Um, what do you, what do you think all this is going to look like moving forward? Cause it does seem like not everybody, everybody's not like rushing to go add even more at this point. We seem like this is ex- further expansion talks have kind of cooled off and this might be 16 teams with Texas and Oklahoma coming in for a while. For some of the reasons that we've just talked about, reasons of politics and of getting people to agree on logistical things, if you're having a hard time building consensus with 16, you're not going to suddenly have an easier time building consensus when it goes to 18. That's a good point. Uh, Especially because football schedules only have so much room to get, get larger and given playoff expansion, really have just about no room at this point. To get larger in terms of the 12th. I mean, I, I say that famous last words, though, they could always figure something out. So I think that that is a pretty legitimate holdup. And, and I think that university presidents are maybe a little bit more naturally risk averse about this stuff than conference commissioners. Like their incentives aren't always going to be completely aligned. If you're a commissioner, there's only so many things you can do in this world. So, like Greg Sankey, for instance, just got this big Disney deal done, got this big expansion done. And now what's he do for the next, I don't know, seven, eight, 10 years? Like, what does he do? What does Tony Petiti, the new Big Ten commissioner do now that they added USC and UCLA and they signed this big Fox deal and plus an NBC and CBS deal? You know, you might you might have presidents that are just like looking for things to do and looking to supplement their legacies and looking to compete with each other and keep up, keep ahead of the Joneses and so you push for things like additional expansion and maybe the school presidents who are trying to figure out how the money is going to be divvied up and about travel for their fan bases and their teams for that matter, and who are more worried about a million problems they have day to day on their campuses, maybe they don't want to push quite as fast on things like conference expansion. I think that tension came very much to the fore with Big Ten presidents and ADs and Kevin Warren, the last commissioner there. It could certainly be the kind of thing that exists in the SEC too. I don't know where that conference is going, but you know, people want different things, and it's challenging as as I think the SEC has already seen to get more and more parties to agree in in a sport and in a world that was you know built for people to argue all the time. It's well, a fair point about the the role of conference commissioners because if conferences are mostly sort of just clearing houses, you know, middlemen between the networks and the schools. Once the media rights deal is negotiated, yeah, what what does the commissioner do for the next, you know, for, for the duration or most of the duration of that contract? It's a fair, fair question to ask. The the one sort of shockwave I could see to the status quo of 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 conference layouts is that in the ACC there are a couple of programs where I I just can't imagine they're going to stand by and let SEC and Big Ten programs take in way more money per year in media rights without 
looking for some way out, whether that's breaking apart the ACC or some of those schools looking for for new conferences. That that seems like the most pressing threat to the current layout of of teams and conferences. Yeah, I would agree that if the SEC decides it wants anybody from the ACC and have a guess about who it would be, probably Florida State and Clemson, then that's the end of the ACC as you know it because they're not sticking around. Uh, There's a big problem for a handful of schools in the ACC right now about the money gap that you mentioned. And the, the tough thing for them is that there's only so much they can do to remedy that other than the SEC come and calling for them. Um, I'm not sure if the SEC would want those schools. Uh, Stephen Godfrey, my split zone duo co-host, and I have had on-air disagreements about this before. There's a case that why would you want Florida State and Clemson? It's not like they give you a geographic footprint that you didn't have before, which to to, to, to an extent, Texas and Oklahoma did. Uh, to an extent, you know, there was another school in Texas already. Uh, it's not like it's a Big Ten Network subscriptions move, like you know Maryland and Rutgers and then USC and UCLA in part are to the Big Ten. So would you add them just because they're big brands and they're good at football and and they would bring some eyeballs because they're these big brands? I don't know. Um, but if that happens, then uh, the ACC will have no defense, nothing it can do uh, come you know the mid-2030s or so when the ACC's deal is up. Speaking of conference expansion and realignment, sidebar here, can you explain to me what's happening with San Diego State? Because I keep seeing stuff about letters and, and and the Mountain West and all that. And I just, I want to know what's going on because I feel out of the loop and I would love the SEC to pick up San Diego State in expansion because that'd be a fun road trip. Yeah, so San Diego State desperately wants to leave the Mountain West for the Pac-12. Seems like they're going to probably maybe, maybe 50 to 50 to 65, 70% chance, I would say, maybe get that chance. Like it's, it's starting to look pretty likely. Uh, but the... Time is of the essence for San Diego State because if San Diego State informs the Mountain West that it is leaving the league by a certain date, it gets a slightly smaller going away penalty that it has Mm. to give the conference. Uh, And it seems like that date might not align with the Pac-12's media rights deal finishing and then the Pac-12 doing what it wants to do after that, which is deal with expansion. So San Diego State is sort of one foot in the pool, one foot out with the Mountain West, and they have asked them for a grace period for a little bit longer, uh, you know, telling the conference that it intends that it might resign. I should say that it might resign, that it's exploring resigning, but that it's not officially providing notice yet because they don't want to get left high and dry. If the PAC 12, for instance, uh, doesn't come through, but you've already left the mountain West. So there's this game of chicken going on. And the mountain West of course says, no, uh, we're not going to give you that. You agreed to these rules. And if you leave, you're going to have to go through a process that probably involves paying us tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and where this will wind up is where everything winds up, which is that San Diego State, if they get the chance, will leave the Mountain West. They will say, we are not paying that. The Mountain West will say, yes, you are. There will be lawsuits. There will be discussions. And there will be a settlement, as there is in every single one of these situations that has ever come about. The money makes sense for San Diego State to join the Pac-12, but they're not. I mean, they're joining. It's it's the Pac-12, but it's like it was still the Tonight Show when it went from Johnny Carson to Jay Leno. But it's not it's not the Tonight Show anymore. the The USC and UCLA are leaving, and and now it's like I, I we use the term Power Five. Like, is that is that on its way out? Because it does feel like there's going to be a gulf 
between a a Big uh, Twelve uh, without Texas and Oklahoma and a Pac twelve yeah. without USC and UCLA and those other three leagues. I, I'm a I'm an advocate of the Big Two because that's where I think we're heading, and then medium sized other conferences. So Power Five is no longer going to be a particularly useful prism to describe the actual power dynamics in FBS football. But I think that just power two and the rest is a little bit too broad brushed about the rest. Uh, There's a huge difference between the mountain West and the PAC 12, which is why San Diego state desperately wants to leave the mountain West for the PAC 12. There's a huge difference between the big 12 and the American, which is why, and there's a huge difference between the American and conference USA, which is by the way, why, I think six schools are leaving Conference USA to go to the American. Uh, there's even a difference, I would say, between the Sun Belt and Conference USA. And, and, oh, yeah. and I think the Sun Belt I would put ahead of the MAC as well. So maybe sure. a more appropriate way to talk about it would be the two, three, one, two, two. You know, <laughs> it's it doesn't really roll off the tongue. Uh, so maybe we'll need something new to. How many delineate. tiers? How many tiers are we talking? You think when when the dust settles, four or five? Just power wise, to the extent that money is power, uh, the Big Ten and the SEC in their own game. Uh, though I don't think literally in their own game, I don't think that the Big Twelve schools, for instance, are going to stop competing for the same national title as those those conferences. But the Big Ten and the SEC would be tier one. The ACC, the Pac twelve, and the Big Twelve would be tier two. Um, I could hear an argument that the Big Twelve is maybe as a touch above the other two because it has some stability that they don't seem to have at the moment, but let's say it's two, then three, uh, the American probably on its own among the rest. Yeah. Probably the mountain West and the sun Belt after that. And then the Mac and conference USA bringing up the rear seems about right to me. Uh, but again, wow, does that not roll off the tongue? I mean, you you had listeners (laughs) probably fall asleep hearing me go through that. So it's, it's not as easy as power five group of five. Yeah, yeah, maybe the best maybe the best ACC schools would be out recruiting the best Big Twelve schools. Like in that situation, maybe like if Clemson and Florida State. But but like you said, I mean there there could be far more stability even without Texas and Oklahoma in the in the Big Twelve. Speaking of the Pac twelve and whatever, and speaking of the state of California, Alex, we we turn to you for a very important question here. Auburn plays Cal in Week Two. I know a little bit about Cal. I've read I've read the Phil Steels and the Athlons. I've 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 read up on some on some beat writers and some blogs. What is your insight as a guy who covers this sport nationally and does it very, very well uh with you guys at Split Zone and, and your writing as well? What's your view on Cal um heading into this season? Because it's an interesting spot. Uh, you know, Justin Wilcox has been there for a minute. Um, they're not terrible. But they've also not really had that consistent, like, get over the hump, we're making bowl games, you know, every year kind of thing that I think Cal's ceiling probably is uh, realistically right now. They haven't got to that point yet. What kind of team, what kind of program is Auburn going to be walking into face in week two in Berkeley? So the guy to look at for Cal is their running back. He's a sophomore this year, Jaden Ott. Uh, I think, I mean, there's Cal fans are very litigious, so they'll correct me on this if, I, if they think I'm wrong. But I think you can make a pretty good case that he's the most exciting guy that they've had since Marshawn Lynch. Uh, he's he's a really, really talented young running back who made an impressive debut last year, had a couple of huge games in particular, and seems poised to stick around at Cal and be be a pretty good player for them. 
Cal is, I mean, nobody is insulated from the transfer portal, but because of Cal's academic difficulty mm-hmm. and, and the fact that they can't just admit whoever they want and that players who are there are legitimately getting, you know, a pretty incredible degree that is that is worth quite a lot. They are maybe a little bit less portal affected than a lot of teams. Though I think this year they have a, a bigger class than they've had at any at any other point in the portal era. So there, there are some intriguing things about Cal there. Uh, it's it is kind of a weird situation right now with Justin Wilcox being in that job. You know, a couple of years ago he reportedly, according to good reporters, like ones who don't traffic in nonsense, had a chance to take the Oregon job. Didn't you know? You know he would have been going home. He's an Oregon guy didn't do that and, and stayed at Cal and because it's Cal, there will always be questions asked fair or not about, you know, whether they're really like in this thing, like whether they're really trying to win in football and like investing in the way that schools like USC and UCLA who are no longer, no longer going to be their peers are. Uh, I tend to think that the truth about how much Cal cares about football is probably somewhere in the middle between what some Cal fans mm-hmm. would say and what, detractors would say like, oh, they're they're not invested at all. They're not trying. I don't think that's it, but it's just, it is hard to win in that job. It's hard to win in the Stanford job. Both of those jobs kind of grouped together just because of the academic profiles of the school and some of the limitations that come with that. Uh, Auburn should, should probably be favored in that game, but yeah. probably not by more than, than a score. Uh, and depending on how things shake out, with especially like with a really good game breaking back for Cal, could be a tricky game. I mean, Texas went to Cal and lost a game back in 2016-17. Yeah, I, I think SP Plus right now, if you look at the early projections, has Auburn like an eight or nine point favorite, which feels right. It's kind of in that, yeah, in that ballpark. Yeah. I think I would have said six, but that sounds exactly right. And this is this is June. Don't even know who's going to be on the team type of analysis. I, I would... I would advocate for Javid Best. That's the one the one exception yep. I would say as a You're Cal right. running back in, in recent right. years. And the career right. was cut short by concussions. But they've had some I I, a, I was looking electric, through an electric player at his at his at his peak. I was looking through when Alex was talking. I was looking through like, all right, who has Cal had? And it's like it's a bunch of dudes, not a bunch. It's several dudes that are like, you'll see them on NFL red zone and you're like, oh, that's a, that's a pretty good player. And like, you don't remember anything about them playing in college. Like, for example, uh, Keenan Allen's Cal career, Marvin Jones' Cal career. Uh, who's, the, who's the big, who's the big tight end who played, he played with Goff, uh, Richards, he had Rogers, maybe he had an NFL career. Uh, for a while, yeah, so he was yeah. a, pa- a Packer. Uh, R- is that Richard, Richard Rogers. I think Richard Rogers was was at Cal for a yeah. couple of years as a tight end. Yeah, yeah. Shane Vereen, C.J. Anderson, like you, like guys that are just like solid NFL players, and that just seems like that's what Cal does. It's just you look up and you're like, oh yeah, Cal's got a few guys in the league, and and you're and but you don't remember any. Like I think we remember, and I, damn, we talked about this a while back. Like we remember Aaron Rodgers, Marshawn Lynch. You know that th- those teams, but like since then, it's like oh they've they've had some dudes and, and golf. I mean, I would watch some of the golf teams. You know, when when he was there with Tony Franklin, uh, but but for the most part, you know, it hasn't been a banner. You know, last couple of decades for for Cal football. Although you know that list you just read off, Cal probably has a better list of receivers and tight ends in the NFL over the last 20 years than Auburn does than Auburn which, has ever had uh, yeah. exactly which is I mean for Auburn which which has had NFL representation at so many other positions that that does 
remain Not a receiver. spot where I mean Darius Slayton gets on the field, right? And 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 CJ, uh, you know, is 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 out there for but but really for the most part, so, you, yeah, you don't see a lot of it. Demetrius Robertson, who I know did a stopover at Auburn, mm. I think was pre was previously he he had a a bouncing around type of college career. Um, you know, he had been like a number one recruit in the country who picked oh, yeah. Cal over over Georgia uh many years ago before I think then going to Georgia. You know, Cal Cal occasionally will pull a player. They'll do that. He was still Alex, he was still taking classes at Georgia, uh Demetrius Robertson, when Auburn opened fall camp in twenty one. And like he yeah. didn't jo- he didn't join until late because he still had to take classes at Georgia to be eligible to come to Auburn and, and it bled into like I think the first week and or it, so of, of fall camp. And he had injuries in his throughout his career. I mean, I think he tore his ACL or something. Yeah, Cal. Yeah. Uh but yeah, that also shows kind of the situation Auburn was in. Arrived late in fall camp, uh, arrived late in fall camp, rolled out of bed basically and still was their number two receiver. <laughs> like that that that's just kind of kind of what what they were at. I real quick before we move on from Cal, Alex, like, what do you make of a coach? Because this, I think, this fits other guys that aren't necessarily just Justin Wilcox. But what do you think of? What do you make of coaches? I should say, these guys who are really good coordinators, defense coordinator or offense coordinator. In this case, defense. Who that was what they were known for. It's like, oh man, that's the you know that side of the ball should be good. And then they get there. And it doesn't really click on that side of the ball when they're head coaches. Like I, uh, I'm looking at Cal. Like last year, they were like 95th in total defense in the country. They've had some decent years on defense at Cal, but like when a when a guy when it's that their thing goes and is a head coach and it doesn't work out. Like what? How do you make? A, what do you make of it? And no, this is not a roundabout way of me saying, yeah, Brett Venables probably should play some get some guys to play a little defense at Oklahoma if he's going he's going to make it there, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I I do find it to be like certainly a red tinted, if not a red flag. Like if if you're supposed to be good at that and you are as much of a mess as, for instance, Oklahoma was on defense last year, a little disconcerting. Like I understand that it's hard to do anything in your first year as a coach and things messes get made. Things are very hard. But if your thing is that you are a schemer and you're good at doing something on one side of the ball, it, it's kind of worrisome when you're like Hindenburg level bad on that that side of the ball. Like the <laughs> fact that there was no discernible difference last year between a Mike Stoops-led Oklahoma defense and a Venables-led Oklahoma defense definitely wasn't encouraging. Like I wouldn't pack up the Venables year at Oklahoma based on that year, but it wasn't good. It wasn't what you strive for. Hey, here's here's one that hits close to home. I mean – Auburn's offense was better in the month of November when they were running the ball 95% of the time with Cadillac Williams as the head coach compared to Brian Harson, whose entire career up to that point was, oh, he knows how to get offenses going. Oh, he he's creative. Oh, he can right. get the quarterbacks right. playing. Like that's the Peterson system, yada yada. Right. Turns out you're kind of a dumbass. Yeah. 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 It'll 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 happen. It'll happen. What what do you think of co- I mean, I guess Venables gets into this conversation about I mean, Auburn just let go of a coach in year two. I mean, the portal gives the impression to people that they can they can turn it around quickly. And if you're, you know, if, if things are headed in the wrong direction in year two, 
feels like schools are more eager than ever before to just pull the plug and make a move. There are a couple of coaches in the SEC that that could be feeling unusual pressure as they enter just their second season. Yeah, it would be naive to think that there will not be more of these things. Like you can clearly do it if you are bad enough. Chad Morris had it done. Uh, Willie Taggart had it done. I forget if Willie Taggart had started his third year or if he was just in his second. Um, but it, it has been done. Uh, it will be done. Uh, oh, yeah. Ryan Harson was the second or third or even fourth, and, and there will be more. Uh, some of these guys, I think, you know, pretty much no way would their school move on from them this quickly. I'm talking about guys who had pretty flop first years. Like, you know, Miami, for instance, it's just in with Mario Cristobal for the foreseeable future. And there's nothing that anyone can do about that. And that's just how it's going to be. If Oklahoma were horrible this year, like five and seven, something like that, maybe even six and six, would they give him a third year? I, I don't, I'm just asking that I, but I, it's rhetorical. I really don't know. What happens uh, if Florida has a losing yeah. team? Yeah, that was Venables. Venables and Napier are the two that come to mind as far yeah. as re- you're really under the gun in year two. So Venables has had, or excuse me, Napier's had sort of an interesting dynamic going on since he got to Florida, where even from his opening press conference, he was trying to send signals that this was going to take some time at Florida, implicitly, though not explicitly, saying Dan Mullen didn't give me a lot to work with, which is true. Uh, Dan Mullen, yeah. ball coach, not recruiter, not program builder at the Florida level. He was great at Mississippi State. Um, but you know, Nick Fitzgeralds don't do a whole lot for you when you're trying to compete the way that Florida is. So Napier was like, give me some time. Like this is not going to be built in a day. He very much did not even try to do the Lincoln Riley thing, the Deion Sanders thing, what is currently the Hugh Freeze thing at Auburn. Like he said this is going to be a slow build. Um and they were pretty bad. And he was issuing open letters in response basically to mad message board posters about recruiting before it even coached the game. Of course, those message board posters don't matter a ton, but if they're bad again and like their recruiting doesn't pick up to being like in the top four or five schools in the SEC and stay there, you do kind of wonder, like, especially while Georgia is doing what it's doing, while Tennessee is doing what it's doing. I mean, it, we are infected in college football by this desire to always have more, 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 more. Uh, and that if your rival looks like it has a leg up on you for even a year or in Georgia's case, several years at this point, then you, you might act rashly. But if Florida was really bad again, would it be rash? I mean, assume money is fake, so. right? Money's fake. Like it's not like, it's not like Florida cares about dumping 13, 14, 15. I don't know. The, the money seems is. extra fake at Florida. If you if you talk to Jade Rashada, (laughs) yes, yes, Uh, the money at Florida has not always been there when promised. I'm assuming that Billy Napier has a few more specifics laid out uh, in his paperwork than Jaden Rashada did. But yeah, like it's just hard to look at any SEC job other than well, actually, it's like Vanderbilt and Mizzou probably don't act this way, and Mizzou definitely doesn't. They're giving Eli Drinkwitz the world in exchange for for what? But it's tough. Like if you're mm-hmm. if you're one of these schools that fancies yourself a, te- a program that can win national championships, are you going to tolerate two terrible years from a Napier or a Venables? Especially when you're, you know, in Oklahoma's case, when you're getting set to go from a, a tough balanced conference, but to a much tougher conference. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I wouldn't presume safety for any of these people if they have a really terrible season. 
You, I, you know, I, I wonder. I wonder if making things worse for Napier is. I, I don't even know if Florida underachieved last year versus the talent that was actually on the team. But when you have a quarterback selected as early in the draft as Anthony Richardson was, when you mm-hmm. have people who believe that you know you have a franchise type quarterback leading the way, there's the expectation that your team's going to be pretty good. And for Florida, that wasn't the case last season, even when Richardson was on the field. And I, th- I think now, I mean, you need to win on a team that on paper has taken a big step back at quarterback from what you had last year. Yeah, and it, and it ties back to everything we discussed at the beginning about how much easier it is to turn over our roster now and how you can do so um, in a much less punitive way for your scholarship math. And it ties into television money getting bigger and bigger and these programs getting richer and richer and recruiting becoming even more competitive than it has been for eternity. There's just no room for chill relaxation anywhere in this sport anymore anywhere and so that is why i i question how many years you get if you're a certain level of bad or just like a certain level of annoying you know that's like the brian harson case you know obviously uh auburn you know better than me pretty fractured group there pretty pretty fractured power structure at times and including uh when brian harson got picked over kevin Steele. Mm -hmm. but you know if you're a certain level of bad you go if you're bad, but everyone loves you, you can stay around for a while. Like Clay Helton lasted what six years at USC. If you're bad, bad recruiting, but, which I but, think is I right. think Napier's yep. hel- Napier's helping himself out there a little bit. Um, yeah, because their their recruiting has started to turn. Um, I but it's just like where will where will it wind up, right? Like and, right. and and it's tough tough for Napier too because I think that some of their recruiting problems in the last year or two are not necessarily on the personality or the drive of the head coach, but on the messy extended network of friends of Florida who were the ones who really fucked up the Jaden Rashada situation. Like, I don't think that was Billy Napier messing that one up. Uh, But still no one's, no one has any chill. So if you go six and six or even seven and five, I don't think, I don't think you'd get fired at seven and five. That would strike me as pretty odd, but I don't know. Like, you know, I, I, there were a lot of people who didn't think that during the COVID year that schools would pay big buyouts to fire coaches in the middle of a budgetary crisis in higher education. And South Carolina still fired Will Muschamp for like 15 million bucks while the world was burning around them. Like every time that I think that something won't happen like that, the sport tends to have a way of being surprising and it happening anyway. So um, yeah, I'll never claim that that someone's not going to get fired. Hey, Auburn, Auburn won a game and then fired, fired Gus Buffs on the next day. I mean, they had already had their, they already had their decision done at that point. Um, yeah, I just my my take on that is there's different situations. You you said it best. Like if you're annoying and not recruiting, you can get you know a shorter leash. But I think if a team like Auburn, if a program like Auburn can look at themselves and say, "Hey, what we've done the last two years isn't enough. Let's move on." I, definitely Oklahoma and Florida, if they have back to back bad years, those are two programs that have one. Or, you know, one has won multiple national championships in the modern era. Another one has come very close. Uh, and and is is one of the big contenders, one of the biggest names in the sport in Oklahoma. Like, why not? Like, <laughs> fi- no. you know, pull the trigger. Yeah. You're gonna, you will always find pe- enough people to write that check. Always. The the funniest the funniest hot seat in college football to me right now is Ryan Day, right? Because it's like all he does. <laughs> yeah, is, that's incredible. All, all he does is win 
12 games a year. 93% of his conference games or whatever it is over the last uh, five seasons. And I mean, there's there. I think there's a not insignificant portion of that fan base thinking, you know, if we're not, if we're not big 10 champions, if we don't beat Michigan, if we're not in the national championship game, maybe we need to try somebody else who can get us there. Dude, uh-huh. It's inc- it's incredible how much Ohio State football and their view of the coaching job there strikes me as similar to, and some of you will get this, maybe a lot of you won't, but it's very similar to like Real Madrid and Bayern Munich in European soccer where they're like, yeah, we won. We're really good, but we're, we're not doing quite enough. We're not beating everybody every single time. And that, that mm-hmm. irritates me. And like that, I don't know if there's another job like that because again, we haven't we haven't seen Nick Saban or Kirby Smart now to this point do that to a to a level where you're like, yeah, you're winning, but like, you know, it's mm-hmm. days he days just been at the doorstep too long, and the doorstep is better than really ninety eight percent of the the country, but it's still not enough for some folks. So they shouldn't fire Ryan Day. The chances of that going badly for them are, I think better than the chances of it going well for them. And he's a winner who wins. He also represents the school in a perfectly positive way. He doesn't, he is not going to embarrass you. He is not going to create HR nightmares to the extent that urban Meyer did. I think he's a pretty good guy to have in front of your program. If you're at a place like Iowa state, he, he strikes but, me like the new trestle kind of like, where you're just like, yeah, yeah like, you know, yeah, really yeah. good at what he does. He's not going to screw you up too much, but, but, I can't talk out we we big royal we cannot talk out both sides of our mouths and on one hand say the great thing about college football is rivalry and how you know your season comes down to one game and there's these century old passions between fan bases and Ohio State Michigan is the biggest game of the year and you get your ass kicked twice in a row by Michigan people are going to want to fire you. Like we spend time gassing up how important rivalry is in the sport. And you absolutely face plant twice in a row to your biggest rival that by the way, none of your predecessors could even possibly lose to no matter how hard they tried ever. So of course people are going to want to fire you. And that's the job. Like that's what the money's for. If you're Ryan day, like you got to deal with that. If you get your ass kicked by Michigan, I think it's on Gene Smith, the AD there to be, be above it and figure out what gives his program the best chance to win. I don't think that's firing Ryan day, but I totally understand why people want that guy run out of town. It's kind of part and parcel to what we say we like about the sport. So if you're going to be okay with rivalry as this big thing, you have to be okay with people calling for Ryan day's job. And I think the playoff game, incredibly playing Georgia really close in a playoff game, maybe hurt because then there are a bunch of things that you can second guess and a bunch of decisions. Oh that you yeah. Can wonder, the oh, end of that well, game. Yeah. I mean, and if, and if you lose to Georgia by 35 points, it's okay. We didn't have the players. There was nothing the head coach could have done in the moment. It's a little bit like Brian Harson's iron bowl in, in 2021, where, because the game was so close and they should have won it. It almost makes fans angrier because it feels like a missed opportunity rather than if you just gotten steamrolled and you could say, well, we didn't have the horses that day. Ohio State may have had the horses to beat. They Georgia. definitely have the horses. And, yeah. And it and it, and it, the guys. it slipped away. Yes. Uh, Ferg has been my ambassador to the Auburn fan base. A lot of them got mad at me when I issued one of my only three or four correct takes of a given year, which was. When they blew the Iron Bowl that year, I was like, yeah, so Brian Harson's going to get fired. Uh, they don't like him, and he uh, just missed his best chance to build some equity. 
And man, were they mad. And the only reason I was allowed back into the Auburn internet was that Ferg, uh, Ferg presented my, my country colors and allowed me to come back. We had in a peace summit yeah. as ambassador. Yeah. It was a peace summit. Uh, I mean, and you were right. The same thing applies to, to the Michigan rivalry situation. And, and yes, I mean, obviously then to be vindicated so thoroughly before all of Auburn Twitter was, was a real joy. You're not the only one. You're not the only one. There's, there's some victory laps happening right now for sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, before we move on, let's take a real quick break, real, real quick timeout. We're going to wrap up with some SEC talk with Alex. Um, hi, if you like this podcast and you want to hear more of it, you can subscribe to the Auburn Observer. $6 a month or $60 a year. We email everything to you, all of our newsletters, all of our podcasts. Uh, go straight to your inbox, 6 a.m. Central Time, most weekday mornings. You'll have at least one or two things in there. Um, had the story on Nehemiah Pritchett and DJ James. Uh, today I got some more stuff coming up this week. Uh, mailbag, a lot of fun stuff. Uh, so if you're you are subscribed, well, I say if you are not subscribed and would like to, it's a good time to hop on board, especially as we get closer and closer to the start of the season. You can also help us out by giving absolutely no more money. Um, just a, just a few seconds of your time, Painter. Tell them how they can do it. Rate, review, subscribe, leave us five stars, leave us a quick review, just a line or two. Uh, is much appreciated. And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention our friends at Homefield Apparel right here. Homefield Apparel, the number one place to buy vintage collegiate apparel. We're all fans of Homefield on here. I'm currently wearing my Pitt Homefield shirt in honor of Alex's appearance on the on the podcast. You can buy a lot of cool Auburn stuff there, T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies. You can buy the official Auburn Observer T-shirt at homefieldapparel.com. Just search Auburn Observer. You can also buy a lot of cool stuff from Split Zone Duo. If you search Split Zone Duo at Homefield, get yourself some cool T-shirts uh, from those guys, and uh, you get 15% off your first order if you've never ho- ordered from Homefield by using the promo code Observer when you check out. The Auburn fan base is very well served to have the Observer, in my opinion. I'm biased towards independent college football media as you know, the one-third owner of one such enterprise myself, but a lot of fan bases do not have this, and when they do have it, it is controlled by large media companies that will chop off the coverage of your team because someone woke up on the wrong side of the bed on a given Thursday morning. You guys having this kind of reliable, independent, savvy coverage of your athletic department every day is something that a lot of fan bases would kill for and don't have because the companies that could fund it only care about a certain type of exponential growth that is completely impossible in college sports. Very lucky to have the Observer. Which you know, because you're already listening to this. That's very kind, Alex. We appreciate you, and we appreciate everything we've got, uh, you've got going on at uh, at Split Zone and all the other places. We'll give you some plugs at the end for more, Alex. But before we go, let's talk a little SEC, a little big picture while we wrap up. Alex, hey, it's an Auburn podcast. Let's get into it. You think this whole thing with Alabama and that quarterback situation is going to work out? Yeah, like it'll work out. I mean, in that in that they won a national title with Jake Coker sort of way in that, you know, Greg McElroy sort of way, you know, it, it works out if you're Alabama. So yes, it will work out, but I would guess just guessing that this will be a relative to recent times dry year for them at quarterback. Um, and I could be totally wrong. Like Jalen Murrow could be great. Uh, Tyler Buckner could be way better than he looked at Notre Dame last year. Uh, somebody else in that room could could seize the moment. Uh, but strikes me as like a 
Bama wins other ways type of year or has to win other ways type of year. That, that's that's June analysis. Sure. It's June analysis. Don't shoot. You know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I, I wonder because they've had such great quarterback play consistently since really since Jalen won the starting job in 16. You go from Jalen uh-huh. to, to, to Tua to, to Mac to uh, to, to this past season, the last couple of seasons with Bryce, could that have covered up some of the deficiencies on the roster? And if they come back down to earth at quarterback, could some of those other problems be a little tougher to conceal? Maybe. Uh, I pretty much always assume that Alabama is going to have multiple future NFL players at running back and on the offensive line. Uh, the thing that has been missing the last, since the postseason of 2022 uh, no, 2021, when Jamison Williams and John Mechie got hurt, is that these Bama receivers just aren't what they used to be. Like, it, they have not had that guy or those two guys or even those four guys, in some cases, that we've become accustomed to them having. And we'll see if they get that this year. You know, I I, I would assume that eventually Bama will return to the land of the dominant wide receiver. That would that would help, like, a lot. You know, I mean, you know, I, who were, I'm, I'm going to mix up my years here, but like, who was Calvin Ridley's quarterback at Alabama? Um, yeah, I think in part it was Jake Coker. There might have been. I've been a little Jalen at the end. I don't like, might have, a little bit of Jalen at the end. Uh, yeah. You know, Julio Jones caught passes from what John Parker Wilson, Greg McElroy. Um, time gets fuzzy um, it, matching up which Alabama quarterback and receiver years there were. So it would really, really help. And then two, and then two ahead for two ahead four future first rounders mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. around him at one point a couple of a couple of years ago. I think the he went into the 18 season with with four guys on the team who ended up being first round picks. I mean a lot of guys can be a good quarterback when you can throw like insert screen, insert slant, and it gets toused 78 yards by Jerry Judy or whoever. Or if he's just six yards past the cornerback who was covering him. So before we started recording Early painter sent the zoom link. It was just painter and me talking in here. Painter, I think you wanted to talk about your favorite person in college football question mark. Now I, I kind of want to, I kind of want to hear Alex's thoughts on, on this team in general, but fire away. I know, I know everyone has, has, has to uh, listen to what you have to say about your, your special friend, Brian Kelly, unfortunately, like, yeah, I don't know. He just doesn't come across as the most pleasant guy in the world. But I, I still occasionally like think to myself about the, I guess it was either a halftime interview or a post-game interview where he says something to the effect of, of the players being executed. And, and I will randomly it's like think about that. like the worst attempt at a joke ever. <laughs> yeah, like he tried to be normal for just five seconds, and even that attempt did not work. But I don't know. I mean, they, they won their division in year one. Uh, so Brian Kelly is a good football coach. That much no one will deny. Agreed. Brian Kelly is a good football coach. Yeah, that's where my endorsement of him ends. But I, I can't deny <laughs> it. I can't deny it that he is a good football coach. So LSU, when we were talking about rebuilding your roster um, and year ones and all that, LSU, I mean, we've talked about it on on this on this program before. They played Florida State last year in that opener, and they looked like the worst <laughs> version of LSU we had ever seen. Uh, at least in at least in the pre, I guess in the in the post Saban era, Saban Miles era, like they just were awful. And then, of course, 
you know, they just keep winning and they win the SEC West. They don't have the horses yet to compete with Georgia, but they win the SEC West. Um, another great recruiting class. They return a good bit of talent. They got some more transfers in the in the you know in the in the hopper, so to speak. LSU. I mean, if this is a down year for Alabama, like it could be, and we've just seen what LSU is capable of if if, if things go well for them. Like, what what are we thinking about Kelly and and this team potentially? Not saying get to get to Atlanta again for sure, but like make some real noise in this last year of a divisional format. Yeah, don't see why not. I mean, it's it, it always feels spicy when you say that any team in the SEC West, such as it is for another couple minutes here, that's not Alabama is going to have a big year. And of course, it tends to feel that way because Alabama more often than not rises, but. Uh, LSU, I think, is getting back to something closer to what it was in the good Ed Orgeron moments than what it was in the, you know, Bo Pelini, everything is on fire, Ed Orgeron conclusion. I, I think that they're getting back there. If you just, in a way, LSU almost gets analyzed coming into this year the way that we would have analyzed the team five or 10 years ago. Not that they're not playing the portal, not that they don't have several important players on their roster came that way, but. We're talking about the veteran quarterback who's back. We're talking about the sophomore linebacker, Harold Perkins, who's back. The two sophomore tackles that protected Jaden Daniels last year. Uh, you know, th- there there are some newer school things about this team. Like their running back came from Penn State. And they are, of course, very, very new age in in a lot of senses uh, about, about how they play and about how their program came together and how they paid all this money for Brian Kelly and how they have tried to spend their way, you know, with some success, spend their way to being near the top of the country and everything. I'm not saying that it's like completely old school LSU, uh, but that analysis old fashioned as it is, seems right to me. Like they just have a lot of good players back who were pretty good last year and should be pretty good again. Like, I think it's Harold Perkins, probably the scariest defensive player in the country coming into this year. I'm not sure that many people would dispute that. Offensive line should be pretty solid with the two young tackles who are back. Jaden Daniels, I don't, I don't think is a Heisman type of player, but you never know. And he's like pretty good, and he's back, and he's played a lot of college football in his day. So, lot to like this year if you're an LSU fan. The the thing that would make me nervous about LSU going into year two under Kelly is how many of their games last year, and they won pretty much all of them, but how many of them? were really, really close in the fourth quarter, highly competitive football games, including the game at Auburn against an Auburn team that was uh, starting to take on water, I would say, to use a to, to use a boat metaphor. At that point, maybe there was already a lot of water in there. But but LSU played you know their fair share of close games. And we've seen, I mean, so, sometimes you have the ability to sustain that, but often a year later, those games that were so close start going the other way and and you start losing more than your share of them and you know LSU could have easily been 9 and 3 or 8 and 4 in the regular season last year with just a different bounce one way or the other i i wonder if that catches up to them in the second year it's possible yeah i mean i think that there are every year and this pretty much never fails a handful of teams in college football that got by kind of the hair on their chinny chin chins and then saw it fall apart for them the next year. There's a long and decorated history of that. I think that LSU might be able to offset some of that just with the the roster realities that I mentioned. Like 
there's just a lot of talent here that is maturing quite a bit um, and that was going to be maturing whether the Alabama thing worked out on the two-point call in overtime or it didn't. But uh, this sport wouldn't be fun if there weren't the possibility of everything catching on fire for LSU. And so I, I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand if, if we're if we're needing to find a way for Auburn people to be optimistic coming into this year. Like they could have a bad year, could have a disaster, and anything could always happen when your two schools play each other. So that's another fun wrinkle. <laughs> All right, so Painter likes to talk about Brian Kelly. I like to talk about Jimbo Fisher almost to an annoying degree because I have now spent the last several years trying to will myself to being right about Jimbo Fisher long-term. My take largely has been um, Jimbo Fisher was at his best and was super successful as a head coach and why everybody loved him in winning championships when Florida State had more talent than everybody else in their conference and it was very obvious. And when that started to go south, he started to go south, and at A and M, he's trying. He's tra- he tried with it. He's trying to get that recruiting up, but it's just not working uh, to the level that I assume A and M fans want it to be. A uh, and M bizarre season last year. After that great recruiting class, they recruited well again, but not not elite elite level. What do you think of the Aggies uh, heading into twenty twenty three? And more importantly, the most interesting. And I say that in with an asterisk collection of coaches in the country, especially when it comes to the power struggle on offense that will inevitably happen between a pair of former uh, former Auburn assistants in Jimbo Fisher and uh, one Bobby Petrino. Yeah, that'll be fun when it happens. Uh, the whole Texas A&M coaching office this year just is fascinating. You know, like I can't imagine it will be more than a month before there's some kind of physical altercation between Petrino and Fisher, uh, DJ Durkin, whose Maryland program killed a player, uh, before Durkin faced no discernible consequences is the defensive coordinator. Uh, we're in a position where Steve Adazio is like a relatively chill. About that. <laughs> Steve Adazio is there and he's like maybe one of the more chill guys on the staff, like a more kind of relaxed sage oracle uh for the Texas A&M staff so yeah gonna be fun there I mean what a happy family that's that's definitely gonna be if they start I don't know two and two uh or or if at any point they face any adversity this year uh I don't know if Texas A&M will be be any good I, I would be pretty surprised if they were what if they were that again like it's just it's tricky because the stuff that used to make you think a program would be coming into its own, like, oh, you signed the number one class in the country a year ago, so their second year on campus, things should be pretty good, doesn't really apply to AM because how many of those players rolled out of town last year? And how many of them were presented dif- different uh, euphemistically off-field issues and, and so didn't didn't stick around with the program? A lot. So like, I just, they're really hard to evaluate really really hard to to make make a guess at what a&m will be other than uh very rich and willing to tell you about it whether they are winning or losing yeah i thought i guess i thought jimbo would have found an answer at quarterback by now like i'm i'm stunned to see how similar the win-loss record is to kevin sumlin's because i thought he would have found something sustainable and it it you know he had a run of really 
productive quarterbacks at Florida State. And he had Kellen Mond for the first couple of years here at A&M. Since then, there have been injuries, but there's also just been it's a, a noticeable lack of production from that position from a guy where, I mean, that's supposed to be one of the calling cards. Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think Jimbo Fisher built a reputation and has stuck with – he built a reputation and he has stuck with what has worked for him which is that he runs a conventionally pro-style passing attack. And that distinction means a lot less to a lot of people now than it did a few years ago because the NFL and college have sort of started to converge in the way that they play offense. There's plenty of RPO football in the NFL now that there wasn't when Gus started calling plays the 2013 Iron Bowl. But it's gotten to the point where it's pretty hard to argue that AM couldn't make things a bit easier on its quarterbacks by doing some stuff that other programs have, have embraced more readily. And uh, some people call it Mickey Mouse offense. Some people say it's fake. If you're just making, you know, two second RPO reads all day and, and throwing a billion slant passes and trying to score points that way. But it's worked for a lot of programs that recruited AM's level and have tried it. It got you guys to a national championship game, basically the first year they were doing it with a defensive back playing quarterback. It has worked for Alabama with countless, not countless, but with several first round NFL quarterbacks and second round Super Bowl participant NFL quarterbacks. Um, Maybe Jimbo should embrace an offense that is a little bit less timing based, a little bit less advanced downfield progression concept based and make things easier on his quarterback. But if he doesn't want to do that, what are they going to do about it? Like they gave him a zillion dollars and committed their entire university to this guy. So if he decides that he doesn't want to do that, or if Bobby Petrino calls a bit of that the first few weeks and Jimbo says, no, we're not doing it anymore, then they're not doing it anymore. And you will get whatever food is on your plate. And if that is the 10th best passer rating in the SEC, you will eat it and you will like it if you are AM. All right. Last question, Alex. Last football question before we go. Uh, this is wide open. Uh, but as someone who covers this sport nationally, uh, who covers, I like it down split zone where y'all cover the whole hog of college football. Give me one, maybe you can give me one or two, either teams, storylines, players, whatnot, that people who are listening to this podcast need to pay attention to this year that they might not know about right now. Um, and outside the SEC, inside whatever, like what, at this point in June, mid-June, are you looking at and said, I am ready to see this, how this plays out, how this team performs, how this dude does, how this coach handles this? Like what what's standing out to you this that is not, you know, that's not maybe on everybody else's radar? Yeah. So I think this hasn't gotten a lot of attention um because it's a small school and they hired an FCS coach, but Colorado hired Jackson State's head coach. Uh, this guy, Deion Sanders. Uh, and I mean, <laughs> there has there hasn't been a lot of coverage of it. So like, I don't know if people are following the story, but I'm, in all seriousness, I'm fascinated by that. Um, I think they're yeah. going to go like two and 10 or three. Like, I think they're going to get destroyed because I think they're going to be really, the line really of scrimmage. I don't see uh, how they I don't see how they survive. Right. Is, they don't is have the anybody. <laughs> and look, you can line play can be sort of fake like USC. Didn't have a whole lot going there last year and still won 10, 11 games. Uh, like, true, they are playing in the Pac 12. You can find ways, uh, in certain environments to to get around line deficiencies. 
like you can do that. I, I'm shocked that you can. Um, but I think they're going to get pounded into the dirt and like, it's going to be, we'll see if I'm right. I'm fascinated by that. Uh, my, my eye is drawn to disaster. So whether Brian Ferentz and the Iowa Hawkeyes offense can get the 25 points per game that will allow him to keep being a nepotism hire for his dad forever, uh, is fascinating. <laughs> if, if you have, uh, he, he has that literal clause in his contract, like a points per game trigger that basically means the state of Iowa will never be rid of either Ferentz if they score. I think it's 25 points a game this year. That one is very high on my radar. Uh, the switcheroo between Louisville and Cincinnati, uh, you know, Louisville bringing home Jeff Brom to be their head coach after trying a couple of years ago fascinates me, as does the fact that the only reason they could do that was because Cincinnati to replace Luke Fickle hired Scott Satterfield, who most Louisville fans, who certainly a plurality of Louisville fans wanted fired at various points in the last few years. Uh, So like who wins that little Appalachian shuffle between Louisville and Cincinnati is really interesting to me. Uh, So you gave me, you gave me a broad prompt. So there's there's a lot of things that I'm excited about this year. Uh, The integration of the new schools into the big 12, like who's, who is immediately good and who is, if anyone is, is fun like that's a conference where you could kind of see all 14 schools being pretty close to a bowl i mean in of course not everyone is literally going to make a bowl but coming into the year you don't look at any team in that league and be like there's no path to six wins for them so how that all shakes out and whether any one of byu houston ucf cincinnati struggles out of those gates is really interesting to me uh and i would top it off by saying i'm, I'm intrigued by who rises to the top of the new American uh, that mm-hmm. completely changed its identity when those schools went to the big 12. So like, can a UTSA come in here and immediately win this league? Uh, can a UAB in your neck of the woods come in here and just immediately be good in this league? Uh, or would it be Tulane, the team that won the conference last year? Will Memphis ever figure it out under their coach, Ryan Silverfield, who has been yeah. underachieving for two or three years now, but hasn't gotten fired yet. Uh, so yeah, thanks for asking me that question. Actually, gets me into season preview mode, which I which I kind of don't snap into usually until July. So a lot there of things will be fun. I you know, and going off of that, Conference USA adding uh, those teams, including Jacksonville State uh, here in the here in the great state of Alabama, is in the league. And I and I I find it weird when you start pulling some of these like odd FCS teams to come up into the joint because like when. When the when the Sun Belt got and and Dan, you know, I know as as a Sun Belt uh, fan, much like me, is like when they got Georgia Southern and Appalachian State, you looked at it and said, okay, well, these are these are two programs that uh, these are two programs that have won big before uh, at that level. Conference USA just trying to scrape and get teams right now in. Uh, Jacksonville State once was really good and it's still been a pretty good FCS team, but like. That is so fascinating to me to see how all that shakes out. Uh, but ultimately, the most important thing there is new teams in the conferences, new teams in FBS mean one important thing for me, uh, and that's straight up the new EA Sports College football game will have more uh, teams you can <laughs> rebuild in dynasty mode. That's that's all I'm really worried yep. about at that point with 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 that. You know, I, I don't have to. Yeah. I don't have to yeah. import anybody. I'll just I'll just roll so with them. So who's your first dynasty? It's going to be Jack State, right? Your first dynasty. Jack team? State. Jack State feels like a lot of fun. Um, I usually do a a, a Sun Belt team. I would love to get like Louisiana Monroe going again, but mm-hmm. 
that's mm-hmm. such a depressing <laughs> like you got to rescue uh-huh. you got to rescue one of those like florida programs right fiu or usf you know you got to find a way yes. to dig, dig dig one of those yes. schools out of get the- fiu you know what you could do do the international fiu rebuild like go and yeah. go and sign a bunch of uh australian punters <laughs> find yourself a quarterback Canadian wide receiver yeah, yeah. couple couple german offensive linemen or right. a I mean, it's time for FIU to live up to its name yeah, you know, I, Alex, on on your sort of barrage of topics that excite you, I'm glad the, the Iowa offense thing. It's, I mean, I, I was in Northwest Florida when Bobby Bowden had Jeff Bowden as the offensive coordinator, and the whole fan base <laughs> was just ready for a change. But Bobby wouldn't do it because Thanksgiving would be too awkward if he fired his son or whatever. And I I can't believe it's happening again with another guy who's put in decades of goodwill. And and yeah, he's just got a situation where like I I mean, I, I imagine there's you know, there's there's an end in sight. He's not going to be able to hand the job to to, no. to to his son. Right. I mean, so it's just no, I can't you, imagine you wonder where you wonder where it's going. That. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, to me. That's one of the most disgraceful situations in college sports the last few years is that a public, you know, not just a public schools football team, but like Iowa, which is a, a jewel of a program for an entire state. Well, except for about you know 40% of the state or however many are Iowa State fans, but like a, a team that really belongs to the state of Iowa and that has a great game day atmosphere, ton of tradition, who doesn't love the Kinnick wave to the kids in the hospital, and that you allow Kirk Ferentz to run it like he owns it instead of like he's a steward of it for the school and for its fans just bums me out a lot. Um, it's, just, it's a rough situation and it shouldn't be allowed to happen. I think that the athletic director there who's retiring, Gary Barta, is like the perfect example. If you were teaching a sports ma- sports management class on like how not to run an athletic department would be letting him do the things he's done. And yet they're they're pretty good because Kirk knows how to hire other assistants like LeVar Woods on special teams, Phil Parker on defense are two of the handful of best assistant coaches in college football. So because when he's hiring non-family, he does such a great job, Iowa hasn't been bad enough to stop him from harming his team this way on offense it's it's crazy to me though i mean it's it's just like it, it, it a team shouldn't be allowed to be run this way and and so i i'm a broken record on this i talk about it way too much on our sports and do a podcast uh but this is my first time talking about it here yeah and you can listen to more of uh, alex on the split zone duo podcast uh they've got free episodes they've got a patreon sports we're subscribers here we love uh, everything that you guys have got going on at Split Zone, and you were telling me before you started recording, Dead Letters, great series on on teams that uh, once were great and are no longer great, and how did that happen? Um, y'all, y'all have got a new episode. I think by the time this comes up, uh, by the time we post this episode on Tuesday morning, y'all have a new one out. Is that correct? Absolutely. If you are interested in the story of how Bill McCartney built Colorado into a brief power in the 1990s, and then left and let it fall apart in some of the most bizarre circumstances in the history of coaching searches and coach transactions in college football, this will be the episode for you. You can also uh, read Alex, uh, Slate, other places. Alex, if they want to read your written work, what's the best way they can – how's the best way they can find it? Because you're, you're, at, you're at a few different places usually. Yeah, I bounce around quite a bit, but uh, I'm still for, for at least until the ship goes under. I'm on Twitter at twitter.com. My handle is at Alex underscore Kirshner, K-I-R-S-H-N-E-R. I'm pretty friendly on there. That's how Ferg and I became friends. That's how Paint and I became friends. So, yeah, hang out. We'd love to see you. 
All right. Uh, that'll do it for us. Uh, we'll be back later this week. I think we will have another uh, Friday premium pod. Uh, so our next podcast for subscribers will be on Friday. Rest of y'all, we will talk to y'all early next week. Most likely Monday, we might go back to the Sunday afternoon record next week. Uh, but appreciate you guys listening. Subscribe to the Observer. Check out everything we got going on. Send in mailbag questions, all that fun stuff. That'll do it for me. Thank you once again, Alex, for for jumping on. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, one of our all-time favorites uh, in the podcast game for sure. That's it for me. Painter, final thoughts. What you got for Alex? What movies are we watching right now, Alex? So the movie that I'm most excited about, and I mean, Ferg and I are, are letterbox buddies, is this Oppenheimer movie. Mm-hmm. I'm just in on this one. I just like, I just, sometimes you just get a feeling that a film is going to be good. And I think it comes out in July, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, like we need, to me, cinema's back. You know, I'm trying to go to the movies again. I've got, like I'm not going as much as I want, but like it's been a while since I've just, dove in head first to a good old fashioned summer blockbuster. I'm ready to ready to munch, ready to eat my popcorn, ready to sit there and let Christopher Nolan me up for a few hours. Alex, where where do your tastes go as a, a letterbox guy? Are you look are you watching old stuff? You watching new stuff? You got a, it is a, a pretty ge- good mix. Genre or two that you prefer? What do, what do you got? I do like to watch the occasional oldies, but it, it's kind of a, that sounds like classier than it actually is because what really happens is I just didn't see enough movies growing up. So like last year I watched the Godfather for the first time. So like, does he like old stuff? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Isn't it? Right. It's pretty good. Right. So it's just like, does he like old stuff or is he just growing up a little bit and finally watching what everyone should have seen when they were a kid could go either way. I do worry that, that now, like when I watch things that were made before 2000 or so, like I'm, Am, am I nostalgic for the time period or do I just miss when movies weren't overloaded with like CGI? And so you had to carefully light things. Maybe the fact that it's actually shot on film has it, but I, I keep, I mean, I'm, I'm becoming one of these guys who thinks nineties and eighties low budget genre films look better than a lot of contemporary stuff for, for whatever technical reason. I think you're onto something we need to, we need to bring back, the, the days of old fashioned, no special effects movies. Although I did love Avatar, so maybe I'm just playing to the crowd. Yeah, I think I think uh, Jim Cameron gets a pass. I know Dan. I yeah, know, Jim I know can Dan's. do what he wants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you know, and I'm not I'm not someone who has like the technical, you know, expertise to to talk about. I do wonder if like shooting on actual film, you know, has has some role in this too. You know, these movies from, you know, whenever they made that transition to start making them digitally. You know, has you know it would it it comes through in the it comes through in the picture years later. Painter, what what movie are you watching? I've been rewatching Sopranos. Okay, not a movie, but thanks. Woke up this morning, got yourself gone.